Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. I'm going to be preaching on the topic of forgiveness this morning. And as we set our minds to understanding what the Word of God says on this particular topic, let's begin by recognizing that forgiveness can only take place in the context of sin. If there is no sin, then forgiveness is unnecessary. But where there is sin, then forgiveness is the mechanism that God has ordained for removing the offense that has created, uh, that was created by the sin. Uh, We can define forgiveness, therefore, as an act of remitting an offense and treating the offender as if he had not committed the sin. Uh, I think I have a slide on that. Yes, we do. So forgiveness, we can define forgiveness as the act of remitting an offense and treating the offender as if he had, that he's not guilty of having committed the sin. And to state the obvious, uh, there's always at least two parties involved in forgiveness. There's the sinner who needs to receive forgiveness, and then there's the one who has been sinned against, who is the giver of forgiveness. In the scriptures, the one who gives forgiveness can either be God or man. In other words, the Bible teaches us about divine forgiveness, and it teaches us about human forgiveness. Uh, While it's perfectly permissible to distinguish these two forms of forgiveness from one another, they cannot be separated from one another. Uh, This is because there's a connection between the two. The human forgiveness that you and I are able to give to each other has its foundations in the divine forgiveness God gives to his people. And this connection is seen in verse 32 of our sermon text. The apostle Paul writes that we are to forgive others just as God forgave us. This connection is also seen in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. As I read these two verses aloud, listen for the way human forgiveness is established in divine forgiveness. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Did you hear the connection? After saying that we are to forgive one another, Paul is quick to add, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. This, notice that this is a command. This is not a suggestion. The Holy Spirit is not making a, a recommendation for how we might choose to respond to those who have a complaint against, that we have a complaint against. Um, he's issuing a command here. He's saying that we must forgive one another, but he also says that our human forgiveness needs to be patterned after divine forgiveness. The manner in which you forgive your brothers and sisters needs to correspond to the manner that God has forgiven you. The logical question that arises from such a declaration is, 
how has God forgiven me? If I'm commanded to forgive others as God forgave me, then I need to know how God has forgiven me, right? Well, the Bible has much to say about the way God forgives his people. For example, I could spend the rest of this sermon preaching on the uh, undeserved favor and kindness that God has shown in bringing forgiveness to his people. There's not a single sinner who has ever deserved the favor and kindness of God that results in forgiveness. And that's why the Bible refers to this as grace. Or I could spend the rest of this sermon preaching about the justice of God in forgiving sins. Justice demands that every sin receive its proper punishment. So if God Uh, if God's forgiveness means that a sinner doesn't need to experience the due punishment for his sins, then what does that say about the justice of God? What does that say about God's justice? Has he opened himself up to the accusation of being unjust? If he doesn't punish the uh, the sinner for his sins, then does that mean that sins are going unpunished? Well, no, of course not. God's justice is in no way compromised by his forgiveness of sins because he still punishes every single sin that people commit. It's just that for those who place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the punishment for their sins was born upon Jesus when he hung upon the cross. So as I said, the rest of the sermon can be dedicated to an explanation of how Jesus fully satisfied God's justice through his substitutionary atonement. But I'm not gonna preach on those aspects of forgiveness today. This is because I have a different objective for this sermon. My objective is to expose an error which is prevalent within the church today. This error has been widely circulated within the church, so much so that many Christians have heard it promoted so many times that they don't even really question whether it's biblical or not. The error I'm I'm speaking of is that which is known as unconditional forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness says that we Christians need to forgive everyone who sins against us without any consideration of whether the sinner repents or not. And I'm sure you've heard this before. Uh, Bill, sins against Judy, Judy refuses to acknowledge, uh, or, or Bill refuses to acknowledge his sin to Judy, and so Judy has an unresolved conflict with Bill. Betty comes along and uh, says to Judy, you just need to forgive Bill. You just need to forgive him so that you can re- release the anger and bitterness that you have against him. You're not going to be able to thrive in your Christian walk until you forgive him. Well, this sounds virtuous and noble. It's not biblical. In fact, if you pause long enough to analyze it, you'll see that the doctrine of unconditional forgiveness is often rooted in selfishness. It's selfish in the sense that its aim is to get rid of anger and bitterness inside of myself. There's little concern about the spiritual welfare of the sinner who's refusing to repent. Rather, the focus is on me. How can I put this ugliness behind me? 
And how can I get rid of all the sinful hatred and hostility that's inside me? Through unconditional forgiveness is the suggested answer. By remitting the offense and treating the offender as if they are not guilty of their sin. What the Bible teaches is that there's a condition which must be met before we can forgive somebody. The condition is repentance. The sinner must repent of his sin and repent to the one he sinned against. Where does the Bible say that, you ask? Well, let me answer your question with another question. Does, God, uh, does God's forgiveness of sinners, does he accomplish forgiveness without repentance? Does God require sinners to repent? Of course he requires repentance. God requires sinners to repent of their sins. This is why John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is why John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. In Luke 13, three, as Jesus was preaching to the crowds, he said that unless you repent, you will all perish. And when Jesus sent the 12 disciples out two by two, Mark 6, verse 12 says, they went out and preached that people should repent. After Peter had given his Pentecost sermon, the Jews were cut to the heart and they asked Peter what they must do to be saved. And the first word out of Peter's mouth was repent. In Acts 3, when Peter and John were preaching in Solomon's portico on the side of the temple, they said in verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. I could go on citing numerous more examples from the scriptures teaching us that God does not forgive where there is no repentance. But I'll offer you just one more example. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. When, uh, when David was king over Israel, he committed some secret sins. And because nobody knew about his sin, he thought that he could just pretend like those sins never happened. David thought that time was his friend, that if he could just put his sins in the past, then he could move on without any negative consequences for what, had, what he had done. But what he found out is that the burden of a guilty conscience is not so easily dismissed. What he found out is that God would not allow his soul to experience peace and rest until he had repented of his sins. Now understand that Psalm 32 is David's prayer to God. It's a prayer. This is David's prayer that was written after he had finally come to the point where he repented of those secret sins. And so as we read this, realize that David is writing this from the vantage of hindsight. What we're gonna read here are the conclusions that David reached later in his life after he had learned the lesson that forgiveness cannot be experienced apart from repentance. Uh, please read along, follow along, uh, beginning at verse three. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. 
Selah. Now let me pause right here for a moment and remind you that the word Selah is a clue for the reader to pause and to reflect upon the importance of what was just read. So when David inserts Selah at the end of verse four, he wants us to reflect upon how he had tried to ignore his secret sins. He tried to ignore his secret sins by not confessing them to the Lord. But David goes on to say that this only resulted in his soul being burdened by his guilt. He writes that the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. He said that his vitality, his life, and his energy were sucked out of him like the drought of summer. And this is what David wants us to slow down and contemplate as we're reading verses three and four. Before moving on to verse five, David wants us to understand the deep spiritual travail he was suffering. He wants us to appreciate that he was groaning under the burden of his guilty conscience that he was feeling the weight of God's displeasure against his sin. Then he resumes in verse five and he writes, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And after David uh, writes, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, he adds another selah at the end of verse five. And once again, he wants us to pause and reflect upon what we just read in verse five. What is it that he wants us to see? He wants us to see that the only resolution to his guilty conscience was to acknowledge his sin to the Lord. David says that it was only when he repented that he was able to experience the Lord's forgiveness of sin. Now, brothers and sisters, David is laying out a clear and unmistakable progression in his prayer. The progression is from guilt to repentance to forgiveness. David is very transparent about the futility of trying to go from guilt to forgiveness without humbling oneself in repentance. He says, I tried to do that, and let me assure you, it doesn't work. That only leads to a greater sense of guilt. That only leads to the Lord's chastisement. That only, le only leads to the enormous weight of my sin bearing down upon my soul, driving me deep into the pit of despair. So dear friends, let it be understood that repentance is absolutely essential for sinners to experience forgiveness from God. Now, why is this important for us to know? Because our sermon text relates human forgiveness with divine forgiveness. Our sermon text commands us to forgive one another as God forgave us. And because we know that God required us to repent of our sins that we committed against him, why would we think that we can forgive the people who sinned against us without their repentance? Please turn now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. I'm gonna read verses three and four of Luke 17. And these two verses have uh, something important to say about human forgiveness. We just looked at divine forgiveness in Psalm 32. Now we're gonna look at human forgiveness in Luke 17. And in case you might think that there's a, a disconnect between divine forgiveness and human forgiveness, that God 
can require repentance of sinners, but we cannot, then these two verses tell us that repentance is a necessary condition for human forgiveness as well. Luke 17, verses three and four. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against him, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. It cannot be any clearer, brothers and sisters. Unconditional forgiveness is unbiblical. There's a condition that must be met before forgiveness can be given. And that condition is repentance. You cannot forgive the sinner who does not repent. Now somebody might ask, what about when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Didn't he say concerning the Roman soldiers who were sinning against him by crucifying him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yes, Jesus did say that, but this is not evidence in support of unconditional forgiveness. Realize, Jesus was not addressing the Roman soldiers when he was speaking. He was not addressing the people who were sinning against him when he said this. Jesus did not say to the soldiers, I forgive you because you don't know what you're doing. No, Jesus was addressing his heavenly father in the form of a prayer. He was offering an intercessory prayer on behalf of the wicked men who were crucifying him. If the father uh, chose to grant Jesus' request, uh, those soldiers would have received forgiveness through the same means that every other sinner receives forgiveness from God, which is through a knowledge of sin that produces godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, I appreciate the way Richard Linsky describes this in his commentary on Luke 23, verse 34. Referring to the Roman soldiers, Linsky writes, all these men who did Jesus to death were an ungodly, unregenerate lot who were living in all kinds of sins besides those they perpetrated on Jesus. What good would it do them to have only the latter canceled? This prayer of Jesus involves the thought that these men may and will yet learn just what they have done, that it was God's own son, the Prince of life, the Lord of glory, and not just a man whom their ungodliness killed. This shows us the fulfillment of this prayer, which Jesus had in mind. By no means a pardon without repentance. That would run counter to all scripture and to the very redemption Jesus was now effecting. But a pardon through repentance when the truth would be brought home to them as the Acts passages brought it home. This intercessory prayer that Jesus made for the Roman soldiers ranks up there as one of the most gracious acts of love a person can perform for another. One of the most gracious acts of love that a person can possibly perform for another person. Jesus is personally demonstrating what he means when he says to love your enemies. At the very time these soldiers were being enemies to Jesus, beating him, 
mocking him, scourging him, mistreating him, crucifying him, Jesus was looking upon them with love and mercy and pity, knowing the divine wrath that was stored up against them. So he prayed to the Father, asking that these soldiers would be given the saving grace that was necessary for them to be moved to repentance and to receive forgiveness for their sins. Isn't that how you and I should respond to those who sin against us? To love our enemies? To intercede before the throne of grace on their behalf? To pray that the Lord would mercifully grant them repentant hearts? I think it's appropriate to identify the dangers posed by the practice of unconditional forgiveness, the dangers. It might not seem like a dangerous practice at first glance, but it really is. Let me share five dangers that are associated with this practice. The first has already been demonstrated, so I'll only mention it briefly. The gospel tells us that without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. God doesn't forgive us with our without our repentance, and we cannot forgive others without their repentance. And so to say that forgiveness can be given where there is no repentance is a dangerous misrepresentation of the gospel. It's a dangerous misrepresentation of the very gospel that we claim we have been saved by. Second, when the offender and the one offended are both Christians, professing Christians, I should say, but uh, the one offended tells the unrepentant offender that he's forgiven unconditionally, uh, that eliminates the opportunity to resolve the matter biblically. That, that, that's the danger. Unconditional forgiveness eliminates the opportunity to resolve a sin matter biblically. The biblical resolution, as we've already seen, is to deal with the matter head on. Uh, Matthew 18 is a well-known passage that describes this. It says that if a brother sins against you, go to him privately and tell him his sin. It doesn't say go to him privately and forgive him. It says go to him privately and tell him his sin. If he repents, then yes, forgive him. That's, That's the response you're looking for. That's the response you're hoping for. And so that's great. His repentance allows you to forgive him and the matter's resolved. End of story. But if you go to him privately and he does not repent, then Jesus says you go to him with two or three witnesses. And if he does not repent in the presence of two or three witnesses, then you're supposed to turn the matter over to the elders of the church. The elders will hear the testimony of everybody involved, including the two or three witnesses. And if the offender still refuses to repent, then the elders uh, will bring formal church discipline upon the man. That is the biblical resolution for dealing with sin amongst professing Christians. But if the offended person, the one sinned against, gives unconditional forgiveness to the unrepentant sinner, then that brings the whole process to a screeching halt. There's no longer an opportunity to truly resolve the matter because the biblical resolution has been short-circuited. Which brings me to the third danger. If the situation 
uh, I just described happens, then the unrepentant sinner is left in his sin. James 5.20 says that when you successfully turn a sinner from the error of his way, you save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. But how can you turn a sinner from the error of his way when you've given him unconditional forgiveness? How can you say to him, you're traveling down the broad path that leads to destruction, but I forgive you. And then you go your merry way knowing that the unrepentant sinner is still traveling down the broad path that leads to destruction. The fourth danger is when a Christian tells an unbeliever, uh, an unbeliever that they're forgiven. Uh, what we just considered in the third danger is when a professing Christian refuses to repent. Uh, and what we're considering now is what, when an unbeliever refuses to repent. The resolution options that you have with an unbeliever are not the same as you have with a professing believer. Uh, you really don't have much recourse in the situation where an unbeliever refuses to repent because the unbeliever has not submitted himself to a local church. He has not submitted himself to a local church and therefore there is no spiritual authority to hold him accountable. Moreover, because he doesn't subscribe to biblical morality, he'll probably just dismiss any attempt you make to, to call out his sin. He'll simply say, I don't believe all that stuff. I don't care if you believe it, but don't cram your religion down my throat. So what are you supposed to do in this situation? You warn him, you warn him. In love, you warn him that he's under God's condemnation and then you share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. The very gospel which proclaims the necessity of repentance. But what do you think happens to the gospel proclamation when a Christian tells an unrepentant unbeliever that they're unconditionally forgiven? What does that do to the gospel proclamation? It undermines the need of repentance. I think we've all seen the courtroom media coverage where the surviving family members of a murder victim are able to say something to the convicted killer. In many cases, uh, the family members vent their anger at the killer. But in some cases, a Christian will address a killer by saying something like, you took my loved one from me and that has caused me more pain than you will ever know but I want you to know that I do not hate you. I don't like what you did, but I forgive you. It's highly admirable that a Christian who's grieving in this, such a, such a deep manner would be able to address the killer in Christian love. That's, that's admirable. But it's unfortunate that sometimes the Christian who's making this address has a concept of Christian love that includes the error of unconditional forgiveness. Because they just told the unrepentant killer that he's forgiven. Yet the reality is he's not forgiven. He's still under the condemnation of God. 
Now, somebody might say, well, but the, the Christian family member is only talking about human forgiveness in that situation. Uh, to say, I forgive you, is not the same thing as saying, God forgives you. True. But is an unbeliever able to make that fine distinction? And if he does, would it, it compel him to say something like, well, if the mother of the child I murdered has forgiven me, then why wouldn't God forgive me? Is God really so petty that he won't forgive me when the mother has already forgiven me? I've identified five dangers related to, uh, four dangers related to unconditional forgiveness. It misrepresents the gospel. It short circuits biblical reconciliation. It leaves professing Christians in their sin. It leaves unbelievers in their sin. And the fifth danger, it assumes that Christians have no other means for overcoming bitterness. It assumes that Christians have no other means for overcoming bitterness. When somebody says, I just need to forgive that person so I can release the bitterness from my heart, the question that needs to be asked is, is that the only way that you can overcome bitterness? Brothers and sisters, we have a a moral responsibility to exercise self-control over our thoughts and emotions. So if somebody sins against you, you have a moral responsibility to fight against bitterness, fight against unrighteous hatred, sinful anger, spiteful words, and every other sinful reaction your flesh wants to respond with. You can do this through spiritual disciplines and the varied means of grace that God has given to you, which is to say, you don't have to resort to an unbiblical practice such as unconditional forgiveness to deal with your sins, uh, to deal with, yeah, the, the bitterness that's within your own heart. Rather than focusing on unconditional forgiveness, you should be focusing on love. Jesus said in Luke 6, verses 27 and 28, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. This is the biblical model for maintaining a righteous attitude towards those who have sinned against you. 1 Peter 3.9 says something very similar. It says that we're to love each other, being tenderhearted to one another, and not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. Bitterness, therefore, is never a righteous response when somebody sins against you. Vengeance is never a righteous response, nor are hatred or malice or enmity. So if your heart is bitter toward the person who sinned against you, then you are responding to their sin with your own sin. You're returning evil for evil. You're returning reviling for reviling. Verse 30 of our sermon text says that this grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Christian love, brothers and sisters, is what guards your heart from sinful responses. Love is what will keep you from becoming angry and spiteful. Love is what will drive you to the throne of grace to intercede for the souls of those who have hurt you. Love is what will motivate you to be kind and tenderhearted to one another. And it's love that will make you willing to forgive in the biblical sense of forgiveness. 
Love will enable you to say to the offender, with all sincerity, you have sinned against me, but I'm willing to forgive you upon the condition of repentance. Won't you please be reconciled with me? If the offender repents, then what a glorious resolution to an ugly problem. Because now you can forgive him. Now you, can, you, you have restored fellowship with that person. And that should be a joyful development, right? We don't want to hang on to our forgiveness and hold it over in like a club saying, well, you know, maybe in a month from now, after you've demonstrated that you really mean what you just said, maybe then I'll forgive you. No, no. Not only does the Bible teach us that we cannot forgive a sinner who refuses to repent, the Bible also teaches that we must forgive the sinner who does repent. In other words, you don't have the option to not forgive him. You're required to forgive him. God commands it. God even goes so far as to say that if you withhold forgiveness from a repentant sinner, then God will withhold his forgiveness from you. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter asked Jesus how often he has to forgive a brother who sins against him. Jesus responded to Peter's question by telling a parable of the, the parable of the unmerciful servant. In the parable, there's a servant whose master had forgiven this servant uh, a humongous debt, much larger than the servant could ever possibly pay if he took all of his earnings and wages for the remainder of his life. He wouldn't even come close to paying off this debt. But then that same servant refused to forgive one of his fellow servants who owed him a much, much smaller debt. And when the master learned of this, he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pitied you? Then we read that the master was angry and delivered the servant to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then Jesus concludes his answer to Peter's question by saying, so my heavenly father also will do to you, to each of you from, uh, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So dear friends, if God has been merciful in responding to your cries of repentance, then understand that he requires you to be merciful in responding to other people's cries of repentance. When somebody comes to you and asks for your forgiveness, you do not have the option to withhold forgiveness from that person. You must forgive him. You must forgive him from your heart, Jesus says. That's exactly what he said at the end of the parable. Listen again as I read Matthew 18, verse 35. Jesus said, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Jesus focuses on the heart because he knows that all the evil things which defile a person proceed from the heart. Which is to say we need to guard our hearts with Christian love throughout the entire reconciliation process. There's no grace period where you're allowed to maintain a bad attitude toward, toward the person who sinned against you. When somebody sins against you, you need to begin working on maintaining a loving, righteous attitude toward them 
immediately. And if it takes a person a week to repent of his sin, then you've had a full week to prepare your heart to forgive him. If it takes that person a year to repent of their sin, then you've had a full year to prepare your heart to forgive him. And if it takes 10 years, then that's how long you need to maintain a heart that is prepared to forgive them. Whenever that person comes to you and says, I repent of my sins, will you forgive me? You should be able to respond, yes. It's a joy for me to forgive you because I have maintained an attitude of Christian love towards you ever since the day you sinned against me. I've been waiting for this. I've been praying for this. Hallelujah. Thank you for coming to me. Now let's rejoice together. So don't fall into the mistaken assumption that you need to wait until somebody repents before you begin to, de to develop an attitude of love toward them. Verse 31 of our sermon text says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. When bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil, evil speaking, and malice control your heart, you will eventually find yourself saying, my life is filled with animosity and hostility. I see it in the furrowed brow on my forehead when I look in the mirror. I hear it in the tone of my voice. I see it in my distrust for people. My spouse tells me that I'm easily provoked. My children tell me they don't see the joy in me that they used to see. I think it's time I start to put away the sin that's in my heart. Dear friends, the time to start putting away the sin that's in your heart is when it first appears in the form of temptation. Don't wait until the offender repents before you start putting away the sin. And don't wait until it takes control of your life. Because it will. The way you get rid of your bitterness, once again, uh, I may be beating a dead horse here, but I want to drive this point home. The way you get rid of your bitterness is through love. Love precedes forgiveness. And by the time you get to forgiveness, the bitterness should have already been put away. And when you love your neighbor and you love your enemy in the manner in which you're supposed to love them, then all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice will have been put away from you, whether they've repented of their sins or not. Because your, your ability to maintain a righteous heart does not depend upon their repentance. Your forgiveness does, but the condition of your heart does not. So let not sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. You hear that, brothers and sisters? Sin shall not have dominion over you. So how should a Christian respond to the unrepentant offender? Love suffers long and it's, and it's kind. It does not, love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things, endures all things. It's the second time we've heard that today. It must be something God wants us to hear. So when somebody sins against you, love them. And when they repent, forgive them. This is how you will forgive them from your heart, as Jesus said you must. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.